when you have people generating or creating in silos, you get a lot of the foolishness that we see happening right now. You get policy prescriptions that are completely lacking in their creativity for because they can't imagine the future. The continent of Africa suffers from this a lot. You know, the joke about about you can be three things, the doctor, an engineer, or a failure to your family. It it has particular resonance on a continent where if those are your only things and those things are 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 constructed for you by a system of education, but that has not been thought through in terms of its relevance to who you are, how you are, and the geographic locale in which you operate, then you're not going to create the world that you need to thrive and survive. We'll be forever trying to copy. Welcome to Creativity Pioneers, a podcast by the Moleskine Foundation that aims to spark dialogues and reflections on how creativity is understood and talked about, showing us its use for positive personal and social transformation. I'm your host, Adam Asane, Moleskine Foundation CEO. Please subscribe now to our podcast on the platform of your choice and tune in for new episodes. I look forward to reading your thoughts and comments on our social media channels. Today we are in conversation with Uzundima Iweala, an award-winning writer, filmmaker, medical doctor, and now CEO of the Africa Center in New York. Uzo is dedicated to promote a new narrative about Africa and its diaspora. He was the CEO, editor-in-chief, and co-founder of Venture Africa magazine, a publication that covers the evolving business, policy, culture, and innovation spaces in Africa. Among the books he wrote, I'd like to mention Beast of No Nation, a critically acclaimed novel released in 2005 and later adapted into a major motion picture starring Idris Elba. Uzo was also the founding CEO of the Private Sector Health Alliance of Nigeria, an organization that promotes private sector investments in health services and health innovation. A graduate of Harvard University and the Columbia University College and fellow of the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard University. His unique background and his capacity to bring together art, public health, culture, and policy makes him a true creative pioneer. We explore his story and his mission through three key words of his choice, political, empathetic, and power conscious. Enjoy. Thanks a lot for your time. And uh, I'm really excited about this conversation. Uh, You know, especially now, I wish, I wish, I would be in New York or you could be in Italy. Uh. <laughs> First, uh, Adama, thanks for having me uh, and for inviting me on to join you guys. Uh, it is a, it's quite the day to, uh, to have a conversation, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. You guys are, are going into lockdown. We are, I don't know what we're doing, but whatever's happening, it's not quite clear at this point in time. So a lot of uncertainty in the world. Yeah. But actually, you know, tell me, how's it? How's it going? Like, because I know I know about your lifestyle before the pandemic. You know, obviously, you know you you were heading an important institution. You were traveling probably fifty percent of your time, if not more, uh, and and moving is part of your identity, is part of who you are. So, so how does this new situation impacted you so far? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, and. You know, I'm always careful about speaking about how the lockdown has impacted me because I happen to be somebody who's in a very privileged position, right? If, like, you know, the first thing is that in the United States, where I live now, close to 250,000 people have lost their lives on what is some utter nonsense in the way that the United States of America has approached handling the pandemic. And I think saying that it's utter nonsense is not like being necessarily political about it. It's just like the truth. Like we have the highest number of infections and also the highest number of deaths around the world. And that's a problem for a country that is basically the wealthiest country in the world. So that's just to start. In terms of what my own personal life, I happen to be in a country that is growing more and more unequal by the day. One of the folks who's in a very privileged position. I have a job. I have health insurance. You know, my my I have a house to live in that I don't have to worry about whether or not my rent or mortgage is going to be paid. And so all of those things for me make this a time that is that is like I feel safe. 
And I think that's something that a, a good chunk of people around the world, whether especially in the Western world at this point in time, where everybody is looking at financial collapse um, because of the mismanagement of this virus, or you know, on the continent where opportunities of Africa, that is, where opportunities have been severely curtailed by this pandemic and the shutdown it has, has put uh, in place in terms of travel, trade, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I feel very, very lucky to feel safe, at least for now. Um, we can talk about the political situation in the United States later where I don't necessarily feel safe, but in terms of the pandemic, you know, I feel safe. I had COVID um, very early on in the pandemic. And again, because I have really good healthcare, uh, you know, I had doctors that I could see because, you know, I come from a family where I literally everybody is a doctor, you know, I was able to, make, I could get the best care, right? People can't say that. And that's a big problem. Um, so like that's that aside. And I think you can't answer the question of how are you without acknowledging that first. When it comes to personally what's going on, you know, I think I feel a lot of the th things that a lot of people feel as well, even regardless of the privilege and the economic circumstances, right? That is, you know, when your life has changed dramatically, you mentioned it, half of my life was basically on the continent of Africa. My partner lives in Germany. I mean, what what can you do? If, if a lot of your life is about moving around the world, especially the continent of Africa, experiencing what it means to be African in different ways, connecting with people, trying to think about how the African story is constructed and reinterpreted wherever it is in the world. If you're like me and you're a writer and so much of my writing comes out of this, this idea of being of multiple places, then to not be able to access those multiple places is, is in a way devastating, but also it is quite uh, enriching in the sense that having to stay in one place means that you have to look internally for those sources of creativity and for parsing out who, who you are and how you are and how you're transforming in this moment. And I haven't had a situation where before where I have had to be in the same place for over you know, two months and that's happened now. And that I think has been really good and has allowed for a lot of interesting, both on the personal side reflection and also on the professional creative side ability to really think through what it is, who I am and what I'm trying to do in the world. So this idea of, this is interesting because it really talks about the new opportunity and dimension that this lockdown has, has created. Um, obviously, you know, I, can't, I, can't, I couldn't agree more and I thank you for making that, uh, uh, that initial premise uh, that it was extremely important. But this idea of an internal journey and, and introspection. And, I, and there is something also interesting because, can you explore a little bit about this idea of between creativity, knowledge, and introspection, because you were a writer, uh, and 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 so you were you were putting these things together, and I, and I thought it was interesting because on one side you had this you had this need, or you were talking about this need as a writer to to be in the world, very much in the world, but at the same time um, there is now this new dimension of being of having the chance to be very within yourself and and uh, you know it it brings i guess new new aspect of your cultural production i guess yeah that's a hard one to answer for me and it touches a lot on things that i think make me very uncomfortable as a person in general uh adam i don't know if you thought we was going to do therapy today but let's just do some therapy <laughs> <laughs> uh, but for me, there has always been a tension, like a, a, a very dramatic tension on two fronts. One is being of two worlds, that is being born and raised in the United States, but being very much a Nigerian in my upbringing and in my connection to the continent. And then there's the other, which is being someone who, who fancies himself a creative person, but at the same time has always thought, or had examples that are perhaps more, for want of a better word, more practical. Um, and I don't like that distinction, and we can come back to it, the practical versus the creative, but that are more, that are, that are more in the realm of, of um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but 
that are that tend to be more more perceived as practical or professional. Let me put it that way. Um, and that tension is something that that has haunted me since the very beginning when I realized that I could pick up a pen and write and tell stories. And at the same time, had this this idea that well, the way that you really make change is if you have a hard edge to you, which is like that you are a doctor or you are an economist, or you are some kind of banker who makes a gazillion dollars and can buy everybody, that kind of thing. Um, and it's it's hard. Um, it's a hard tension to have to really sit and deal with, especially at a moment like this, where you have to wonder whether in a at a point where the economics globally are changing, whether really focusing on creativity as a means for change is in a sense of frivolity. Um, versus the very basic needs that people have that will become more pronounced. And that's the need to eat, the need for healthcare, just the simple act of trying to be alive. Again, we can come back to this because I have, I have thoughts. Um, with this idea of like creativity and knowledge and introspection in this moment, in this time, you know, like there's a lot of time to consider that. And the idea of doing versus taking a moment to step back and understand. And I think on a personal level, you know, in the job that I have at the Africa Center, also just in some of the the reaction to the way the world has changed dramatically since 2016, there has been a real do, 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 do mentality, right? Which is we have to figure out how to, to stand up. We have to figure out how we show ourselves. We have to figure out how we we, we push against some of the, the uh, institutionalized forms of hate or the forms of hate that are becoming more and more popularized or normalized in our discourse. There's a lot of that. But at the same time, this particular moment gives me a chance personally to step back and say, how are you doing that? I've always thought that the best way to do that was through some combination of creativity and the harder edged escapades, say being in public health. Um, which was what I was doing before running the museum, or even the act of institution building, you know, putting together the Africa Center as an institution. I don't know anymore, and I don't know that I'm going to have a great answer for you. I think the thing is, I can tell you that in my creative work, what I'm working on now has a lot to do with this internal search and understanding about exactly this, um, really more focused on this idea of vulnerability and how do you process your vulnerability and how is creativity essential to processing vulnerability? Step one. Step two is how is vulnerability a political tool or a political factor? And how do we look at, think about, process, analyze, construct vulnerability and who uses it? That's a lot of the work and reading and thought that I've been doing because to be creative is to, to be vulnerable. It's to say that whether you're saying, I don't know everything and I, or to say that like, I'm, you know, and I have to really think about this and then render something in the world or to say that I want to construct something that hasn't existed yet. What are people going to think? Is this really going to touch people? It is in a sense, stepping very deep into a part of yourself that acknowledges that you could be, <laughs> you know, that you are, that are, you're not inviolable and, and presenting that to the world and saying, this is what I have for you. Do with it as you may do with me as you may. That is a really difficult thing to do. And I think it's an even more difficult thing to do when you're, you're adding to that, that tension or trying to suss out and really determine for yourself what the political power of creativity actually is and whether that political power of creativity is the right power or the right force to be focused on at this particular moment. You know, you know I, was, I was, when you were talking about the tension that, that you had all your life, um, I was smiling for a moment because a I and I, I think that I understand part of it, mm. um, and uh, and I was and it reminds me um, I just watched an old uh, stand-up comedy of a Nigerian uh, uh, comedian at Apollo, and uh, and at some point she said, uh, in Nigeria you can do only three jobs for your family <laughs> and. A doctor, an engineer, disgrace for the family. These are the three. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's so true. Um, and I'm sure that you have a similar thing, right? But for, for me, I kind of hedged my familial disgrace with being a doctor. And I'm hoping that it works out. At least let's flatline, you know? 
Yeah, but b- before, because I'm, I'm very interested in, in exploring more this idea of uh, of uh, um, uh, creativity as a political tool and, and vulnerability uh, as a um, as a fundamental uh, element in the new political and social discourse. Um, I wanted to kind of go back a little bit more, also still on the on the self, in the sense that. Um, Independently of the way you now you still somehow in um, in a, in a independently even if you're still uncomfortable in this duality, uh, you know of 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 uh, of the various professions and the various hats that somehow have you have. At the same time, you have experienced it, and you have experienced it, you know, um, I think in a very unique way because on one side you have the complexity of the self and dealing with uh, expectation, uh, uh, you know, and especially also personal sensitivities, but also you had the chance to do it at a very high level, uh, you know, with uh, what society would would consider as uh, successful (coughs) um, projects and experiences. Um, How did this experience inform your idea of this duality. Like, what are the, um, the information that you have managed to, to harness from, uh, uh, from your experiences? The skills of, of creativity, the sensitivities that you manage to, how does that can somehow, you know, uh, fertilize the, the other, the, your other self? Sure. On a big picture level, personally, the the most important thing for me with creativity is never feeling 100% sure. I think the second that you feel 100% sure about something, you lack the ability to be creative around it. If you are from multiple places, whether that's in your nationality or your racial composition or your professional composition, whatever you want to talk, once you're pulled in these poles, you will never be comfortable. Therefore, you will always be curious in a way. You'll have a deep internal curiosity, even if that curiosity is is, is pushed by this idea of a longing for stability in your understanding of self. And that will then impact and inform the creative work. And it can be frustrating because sometimes it feels like you're doing a lot of navel gazing or you're constantly thinking like, who am I? At the same time, I think I never want that question to go away, even if sometimes I want to be better about how I process it in my life. That's one. Two, being able to step outside of one world and into another and feel like you're integrated into another allows you to see the world you've stepped out of in an interesting light. It allows you to see things about that world that you you wouldn't or you can't see when you're in the day-to-day existence of that world. So if I'm here now in the United States and I can see what's going on in Nigeria with the protests or just even daily life, it gives me a way to process and understand and interpret daily life in Nigeria that is reflected or or you know refracted, whatever the word is, through the American lens that I that I that I see it through. And that gives me a particular take that will invariably find its way into my writing. It gives a tension there that will invariably act as a driving force in my writing or in the film work that I'm doing, or even in the kind of institution that we're trying to build at the African Center. If I step out, I'm in Nigeria, my American existence is also then viewed through a different lens that I'm able to take in information differently. I'm able to process you know, what does American patriotism mean? What does American nationalism mean? What does it mean to be black in America through the lens of being a black African or a Nigerian where race isn't necessarily front and center? How do I look at these things? And how does that then inform my creative stance, which informs my political stance or my political stance, which informs my creative stance? All those things work with each other. From a professional perspective, I can tell you this, that, that, being in a field like medicine for a little bit at least, there's a certain discipline 
around how you conduct yourself. You know, you can't just kind of be super creative with people's lives. I mean, you can, it doesn't usually work out for you or them, but that you have to take into account. And I think that's really good for creativity. I think being able to create structures for yourself that allow you room to maneuver, but also at the end of the day, if you have to write a book, you have to write a book and there's a deadline there and you can't just, I mean, you can, but you can't just really keep pushing deadlines back. And I think being in a, in a field where there are certain conventions around discipline and delivery really for me does help me think about my practice of creativity, my practice of writing generation and then exhibition to the rest of the world. So I am, you know, there's also the connections that you make within each of these spaces. Having a broad network of people across the sciences or in in the policy space, as from my previous career, really is helpful when I'm thinking about some of the things I write about, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. That perspective and that understanding and that that deep well of knowledge that comes from those associations is so important. And I think when you have people uh, creating or or generating in silos, and the flow is both ways, right? Let's just put that out there. But when you have people generating or creating in silos, you get a lot of the foolishness that we see happening right now. You get people putting together systems of communication that don't take into account what happens when people are presented with disinformation. You get policy prescriptions that are completely lacking in their creativity for because they can't imagine the future. The continent of Africa suffers from this a lot. You know, the joke about, about you can be three things, the doctor, an engineer, or a failure to your family, it, it has particular resonance on a continent where if those are your only things and those things are, are, are constructed for you by a system of education that is not necessarily, I'm not going to say not indigenous, but that has not been thought through in terms of its relevance to who you are, how you are, and the geographic locale in which you operate, then you're not going to create the world that you need to thrive and survive. You'll be forever trying to copy or you'll be able, you'll be trying to suppress your own imagination as something bad or distorted or whatever, instead of harnessing that information to create the political reality that you really need to survive or thrive. I think that's really, really important to think about and to process and to consider in this discussion we're having, but in terms of the, the understanding of, of, of why and how these things interact with each other. Why it's important that you don't have a government that's only made up of people with engineering degrees or why in a hospital situation, it's not just doctors that should be out there running the show. People have a particular professional training, tend to think as a group and tend to have and maintain certain assumptions. Somebody comes in with a, well, what if you did it this way? And all of a sudden there's innovation and there's, a, there's creativity and there's a new way of seeing, rendering, you know, moving yourself through the world. That's really, really important. That's why that tension is important. But whether you're here in the United States or you're on the continent in any one of our countries, people have a hard time processing that that tension is really necessary. And we try to, in as many ways as possible, eliminate that tension and that that manifests in various forms i'm wondering if you if you now you go back in um you you, you are becoming like the dean of uh, your former uh physician and medic and, and medical school doctor like the, the certain kind of dean of I don't know, you get into dangerous territory man they're never gonna have me back over there i'm telling you <laughs> But let's just let's just let's just let's let's go with your premise. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I you can change you can change your the curricula of your students. What would you add? Sure. Let me start this by saying I was so bad at medical school. <laughs> I was so bad that these people. Anyway, let me just put it this way: if I could change something at the school I went to. I think it's this. I think one, there's so, there's so many things because I think medical education is just is is not what it is. I think first and foremost, this focus on like you have to memorize, memorize, memorize. Yeah, you need to know a lot of stuff for sure, and you need to have this stuff on hand for sure. I'm not doubting that, but the truth is, 
the best doctors I have seen are doctors who understand fundamentally people. There's a reason why I think if you want the best care, and I'm just going to say it, and I, I kind of practice this in my own life when I see doctors, the best doctors to see are women, are Black women. Why? Because there's an understand, there's a willingness to listen that I think a lot of other people in the profession don't have. And there's, there is a, an ability to suss out um, and to handle and hold a lot of the tensions that come from positions of precarity, from when somebody is really feeling vulnerable. You know, I'm, I am very, th this is generalizing, but I think it, it's borne out and it's borne out in, in the way that I saw, or at least I was taught medicine, where it was always, there is a standard patient. No one ever sat down to interrogate why that standard patient generally seemed to always be a white person, a white man, where drugs were tested or, or developed or made for that person, you know, treatments were made for that person. No one ever really stopped to, it's recently that people were like, okay, well, how do we really think about the social dynamics involved in the patient-provider relationship when your patient is of a certain uh, socioeconomic class or caste status and your provider doesn't even recognize that they themselves are also from a specific identity group. What does that mean for care? And I can tell you the number of times I've been in a room with a white male doctor, for example, and I don't, I never say anything. I don't say that I have a medical education because I'm always just interested to see how does this person approach me. And there's night and day. And I think a lot of that has to do with a lack of curiosity around interrogating that particular relationship and the importance of that relationship. Now I'll, I'll take you to a specific example. When I was in school, I remember I, one of the, the, the most amazing rotations that I did was on the HIV service uh, in New York. This was now getting close to 10 years ago. And the doctors on that service were fabulous because they had been dealing with HIV, at least in the urban context in the United States, since it, it arrived, since it became a thing that people knew about. So they had 30 years worth of experience basically from the, from the 80s up until the, the, the time that I was in school. And they could tell you all this stuff. And that was really, really, and you know, the patient population that you were dealing with, for example, was one that came in with so many, so many issues that were, were intersected with each other. Because in New York City, you can get treatment for HIV free if you, if, if you have it, basically the you there's there shouldn't be anybody who presents with aids right that that is like the the end stage complications of hiv and yet you would still find people presenting with that and invariably there were all these intersecting issues whether it was issues around the that person's economic situation or around their mental health um that's just to set the stage what convinced me that like i was maybe a little bit in the wrong place was when we were doing the rotation, I did two HIV rotations. On the second one, I was paired with the doctor who hated me and I really didn't like her, but that's okay. Um, and one of the things that she made me do was, I don't, I don't, I, you, you give me flashbacks, but basically we would be in our morning rounds and you're the med student, so you're like kind of the most junior person on the team. And I'm thinking when they're asking, you know, they're, they're going through and rattling off, you know, what was this person's temperature? What was, what are the vitals and all of this sort of stuff? And then we get to a patient where they're talking about, oh, well, this, this person has refused their medication. So we need to make sure that they start make, taking their medication again. And I was the person who raised my hand up and asked, well, this person was, was born with HIV. Uh, you know, he got it in the process of when, you know, when he, when he, during the birthing process. So this, this person who's 23 years old at the time has only known taking these medications. And as we all know, these medications over time, like at least they are the, the early ones, like they do have side effects, right? Like, and even now they still have side effects over time. And this has been this person's life for all of that, that this entirety. And this person is telling you that they're tired like, should we, if this person has said that they're tired, should we not spend more time trying to understand why they are tired? And not just from a, oh, you're abnormal, let's bring in the psych team to fix you so that you take your medications. But like, what's this person's real story? And why are we at this point? And, you know, the look is, man, why is this, why are you wasting our time? Mm -hmm. Basically. And that's, 
And then the result is, hey, why don't you go find this patient and handwrite all of their temperature readings for the last month in a notebook so that you can understand what it means to take temperature for somebody? I'm like, are you serious? But that's what I'm saying. This is what I mean about the, 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 just the very, you get a, a bunch of really smart people in a room, and I'm not the first person to say this, but you get a bunch of really smart people in a room who are trained in a particular way and in particular have their own, their own language, their own idiom, and then you set them loose in an environment that is tightly controlled and you see what happens. The care providers were overwhelmingly white. The patient we were talking about in this case was black. I'm a black person who was not that much older than him. My perspective on it is very different, but the group doesn't allow for that perspective. I don't know how you fix that in medical education where you have so much volume of information to cover and imbibe, but that's really not what makes you a good doctor. It's just not, I don't care what anybody says. Like knowing that, knowing somebody's like, you know, some obscure diagnosis that makes you a great diagnostician, but it doesn't make you a good healer. And for me, medicine was about healing, whether you're talking about the patient level or the, the macro public health societal level, it's about understanding the narratives of the people you're dealing with, again, on an individual or a group basis. And I don't think medicine, it's only now that you're getting the things like narrative medicine and people are, are paying more attention to some of these issues about uh, the role of race and, and class and all these things in care. But if you look at the medical establishment, for the most part, you look at what they look like and who they are. This is not something that they really, truly, I believe, want to deal with. And if you look at the school that I went to, Columbia, and I have a lot of issues with this school, which we can talk about off camera. Um, I don't believe you've got a set of people who truly understand what kind of work they need to do to remedy some of the, 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 the conditions or the, the starting points for the kind of care and the lack of creativity that is involved in teaching people how to care. I've said my piece. I graduated. They can't take the degree back, so it's all good. <laughs> No, I mean, thanks for sharing this. This is because there's almost like what I hear, there's almost like a dichotomy between the amount of knowledge and uh, uh, that that at some point you consume and and you well, you're able to interiorize and and the way society give you uh, a specific uh, um, a role uh, that kind of becomes also almost a justification uh, to move away from your most basic uh, human traits. Uh, that in this case, we're talking about, you know, creative traits. You know, you were talking about empathy. We were talking about curiosity. We were talking about, you know, anything that shouldn't be necessarily also like skills and, and, and elements that stays only within the arts. World, but it should be, you know, within within any human being, and and right. emphasize somehow. People are are try to hide their true emotional intention behind the policy they're putting together in all kinds of technical language, and that cuts both ways. Like you can do that when you're trying to do something really positive, or you can do that as we see here in the United States when you're really just trying to disenfranchise people. And what what's at the root of it? The root is your emotional fear but it doesn't work. You lose status. I mean, most people lose status unless your name is Donald Trump. If you get up and you, and you're just raw about your emotional fear, but this, this is why, you know, if we're talking about the situation today, this is why Trump appeals to people because he's cut out all that stuff. And he's at the root of his policy is like, look, man, at the root of what I'm saying, you guys can talk all of your, your technical stuff. You can talk about all of your, your, you know, rules and regulations. I'm trying to tell you something. I'm scared. I know you're scared. Let's be scared together and kill anybody who, or let me not say kill, but let's be scared together and, and eliminate however we can anyone who makes us scared. Mm. That's one point. The other point is, and that's an emotional argument. That's the create that that man, let's just call it what it is. I hate to say it, but Donald Trump is a very creative person in a very specific way. The other argument is. I know you want money. I want money. We all want money. I'm about this money. That is, <laughs> that is the thing. Let's be creative. I've been creative about how I get this money. You can be creative too. All this, this rule, regulation, tax, this, tax, that. Ain't nobody trying to hear that. I'm trying to get this money. Like that, that ability to be hone in on these raw emotional aspects of things. 
so many people in the pursuit of status, you get your law degree from Yale, you get your medical degree from Columbia, you get your, what, like we lose all that and you lose that, that ability to com communicate the sort of like the raw emotionality. That's what creativity is, is necessary for. And we don't have people who can do that in a, in a fashion that is, is positive anymore. And that's a problem. And, and I, when you were talking, I was exactly thinking about this, you know, in a sense that the reason the importance of tapping into raw emotions, but there is also emotions that are, that can be uplifting, like, uh, like empathy, for example, that you mm -hmm. earlier. Um, but there are also emotions that are the opposite of being uplifting, uh, like fears. And, and, and it seems to me that the examples, for example, that you just gave about, about Donald Trump or many others, you know, there is this element of tapping into the fear of people. And, and I think it's interesting to, to put it in the same realm of, uh, of creativity because it is, and it's too often probably they always, we always tend to have like a, only a positive, uh, a positive connection to, to creativity. But since this is the idea of, of this, this, also this conversation, this Pascal is under this idea of creativity, so now, if we, if we need to get what you're telling us about the importance of tapping into um, the emotional aspect of people, uh, the importance of um, understanding and, and, and getting into a more human level, uh, then how can we choose this recipe or how can we use this recipe uh, for good? How can we become a force for good? Right. Yeah, look, you know, we talked about the three words, and I think we, we had said political, empathetic, and power conscious. Yeah. You know, and it goes back to those three words for me. So how can you use this as a force for good? I think it's the first thing, and when I say power conscious, it, 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 I, I think about it in multiple ways. It's recognizing that, that this creativity can be used for both good and for bad. Everybody kind of thinks that creatives are, you know, and that's, that is like really understanding and recognizing the full spectrum of power of creativity. And everybody always thinks, oh, everyone always pairs creativity and progressiveness. Like that's just kind of an automatic conclusion that, oh, if you're a creative person, you must be politically progressive in some way, or you must be, and that's just not true. It's, and it's just never been true. And creativity can be used in the service of a very negative power, as we, we have said. Even if you are a good person, like you can still very much use fear as part of your creative process. And that produces a particular outcome. You can use empathy as part of your creative process. I think the, the people who are the most effective in, in what they do on a creative level are ones who understand the mixes of of, of like elements of power that go into their creativity and the valencies of that. So it's like, you know, somebody, again, to, to use the example, someone like Trump really has only one vector and that is essentially fear or self-interest. But, but the creati creativity is then channeled within those, those, uh, those vectors, right? Watching a Trump speech is entertaining that is that it, to be able to do that right there's a reason why he's on television all the time he's entertaining that's creativity that's an understanding of how to harness power and creativity and i won't harp on it too much but like just remember that fox news here in the united states for example as an as a news channel they've perfected this they're extremely creative in the way and all those guys those pundits or whoever the anchors who get on there and just spin fictions they know what they're doing these people know what they are about. They're very clear about it. And the way that things are set up, that's the use of that stuff in the service of, of fear and for a particular political and, and uh, power-oriented aim. How do we do that on the side of generating more empathy? And how do you use that empathy to create and construct worlds that we are interested in? First of all, I think we have to have a discussion of, of what are the political worlds that we want to exist in? That again goes back to creativity. That goes to, can we bring, you know, starting from this point, the powers, can you assemble people together to think about a more open or a more empathetic or a more vulnerable way of, of existing? And then how do you assemble the 
the political language and thought to bring people along in that. That is a, another use of creativity, moving people towards that, uh, telling stories or, you know, putting together artwork or cultural expression exhibitions, et cetera, that moves people in that direction. That's again, under being very conscious about the power you have in your creativity and moving people in that way. That's being very conscious about empathy as a tool and not just as a, as a desired end. I mean, empathy, yes, we all want to be empathetic, but empathy is also a tool and it's being conscious of how you use that and how you, how you use it to move people in a particular direction or, you know, whether or not you fail in doing that. You know, all I'm saying is just, is that, that it requires, I think we have been frivolous with creativity, at least in the Western world, because for a while now, because people have, have, have forgotten or have decoupled it from the political in a way that I don't think makes very much sense. And I think now that we're in this situation, people are, are not just saying, but are doubling down and like going back to this understanding of the connections between cre the creative, the political and, and power. Uh, but I don't know where that goes and I don't know how that ends up. You know, I don't know how people get super, super serious about it in a way that say James Baldwin was serious about it and understood really and truly like what it meant to to be a writer in a time of great political upheaval and change. You know, I don't know that, uh, I, I shouldn't say I don't know. I mean, I think I should say that people are experimenting with what that means and how that's expressed in our particular moment, which is very different from the moment that Baldwin came up in or that Langston Hughes came up in or that Zora Neale Hurston came up in, you know, or, you know, the Achebes and the, the, the Bessie heads of the world came up in. You know, so I think it's just, there's a there's a, a a movement back towards that, which is and and using creativity, understanding the connection of creativity and power, um, that was maybe pushed to the side or interrupted by the massive commercialization of creativity. That's that's what I'm saying. I don't know if that is clear, but I think that's kind of where I'm what I'm trying to get to in terms of power, creativity, and its and its its use and movement. Absolutely. And what do you think is, um, obviously this question is su supposed to be more, more specific, but you, you are the head of the Africa Center. So what is the role that uh, Africa as a, as a concept, you know, sometimes Africa almost as a metaphor for the world, uh, you know, what is the role that, that Africa can, can have in this, in this quest? Especially because you were, we were talking about the Western world now. What do you think is the, the element it can bring to the table? Yeah, well, uh, to be blunt, the, this world, the wider world would have no, <laughs> would be nothing without Africa. That's both in a, in a physical sense and also in terms of its understanding of self. If we are considered, like, there's the way in which Africa is, is absolutely necessarily constructed as it is like as an like an imaginary concept because the rest of the world cannot conceive of itself without the negative foil that like you can't and i just i i think everything about get my own personal experience or experience and, and opinion but everything about the united states cannot be constructed without blackness as a foil Whiteness can't exist. They, they have no ability to conceptualize of themselves without, you know, again, this goes back to that Hegelian dynamic, right? Without being able to express or dominate uh, ex without an expression of dominance on another people. I think the world has taken Africa as that. So the world owes Africa a lot. These people's conception of self is, is non-existent without us in that role. And that is why you see everyone fighting tooth and nail to keep Africa in that role. Because you take, you know, it's kind of like, coronavirus, you put everybody on pause for a second. Oh, shoot, we actually have to look at ourselves. No, I don't really want to do that. You know, I'd rather just sit in my house and drink wine. Do you see what I'm saying? And so if you now have an Africa that is arguing for a very different creative understanding of itself and this presentation of itself narratively, the rest of the world will necessarily be like, yeah, no, homie, we ain't, we ain't about that. Like, because that means the rest of the world has to actually sit down and think about what it is outside of its, its, its negative uh, or the positive reflection of itself against a negative African. 
I'm hell-bent on making sure that the world has to take, take a look at that and examine that. Like that, I think, is one of the missions, whether or not we like it and whether or not it, 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 it just is inherently, it's central, even if it's not central. And I, I don't know how to explain that, but it is part and parcel of the work that we have to do, I believe, as an African creative person. And I'm okay with that. That doesn't necessarily mean that everything you're doing is speaking to the outside or to the white person or whatever. It just means that you're a fool if you don't recognize that your work exists within this context. And I think this is where I, again, go back to sort of this idea of the political and being power conscious. There's nothing wrong with getting up and saying, as Achebe said, yeah, I was trying to make sure that I broke your understanding and, and completely reoriented your world. And that's why I wrote Things Fall Apart, because I read Conrad and I was like, this is some bullshit. I'm going to show you how it's really done. That's okay. That That is a profoundly incredible and important creative expression. It's a powerful creative expression. And it's a creative expression that understands the power of creativity. You know, I have no problems with that. In fact, I have like <laughs> the, the, um, the, the, like the level of, of, of like, I just have zero problems with it. I don't know how else to explain it. And I have zero problems with it because again, if you look at the way that when people talk about sort of the political project of African creativity, I'll go back to an example I had from high school where I did an independent study on, on, uh, on African lit, post-colonial African lit. And one of the, the instructors or professors said something to me that I will never forget, which was that African literature can never really be high literature because it's too political. And I'm just like, you know, and it goes back to this thing. And that's part of, that's part and parcel of the hustle here, right? What the hell is Shakespeare? What is, what are any of these plays that this man was writing in the 1500s, like that were performed, the, the histories where you're looking at King Henry and whatnot, like the, like a play like Macbeth, a play like King Lear about power, political power, the power of kings. I mean, come on, right? What are half of these, you read Balzac, what are you talking about? Do you know what I'm saying? Like you're talking about commentary on an economic situation. You read Charles Dickens, you know, like these books are all political commentaries. So as an African person, somehow, some way, you're supposed to exist in a creative space that is totally apolitical. That's utter nonsense. And if the political space that you exist in is in part governed by the struggle between a force outside that is hell-bent on making sure you do not recognize your worth and the forces of empathy, of connectivity, of, of, of uh, you know, let's use those two words that are hell-bent on moving you to a different vibrational space, right? That are hell-bent on saying, look, we exist as humans. I have no problems with letting that, that be a part of the political struggle. And it's not necessarily that you're speaking to that, even if you are. That's not, that's not what preoccupies me fully, but it is something that, I'm aware of because it's the political context in which I operate. That's fine. That's not just fine. That's necessary. In fact, if you're not doing that in some way, then we have a problem. I'm wondering. There's a there's there's there's, there's a question that I always battle with myself, um, and and it's regard regard you know it relates with with my professional role and and what I do for a living and uh, and because. Have you, a lot of the things that you, you said resonate a lot, uh, resonate a lot of a personal level, resonate, resonate as a, uh, you know, as a personal experience. Um, and it resonates and it makes sense to me at an individual level. I can, I can talk to people into this or like I can, I can share this with people at an individual level. But right. then so you're also running an institution. So mm -hmm. speak about creativity and we bring it at the institutional level. There is this concept of institutional creativity. How can we, uh, how can we contribute to build creativity at the institutional level? Because that's probably a, a different process. <clears throat> yeah, it is and it isn't. I, again, with the, the, the institutions, the same thing I mentioned about the medical example is true of a lot of these institutions. It's a whole bunch of people who have very similar training, usually very similar socioeconomic statuses, usually very similar worldviews coming together and then wringing their hands about why 
they can't do it differently. Do you know what I mean? It's like, if you are, and I'm just going to pick on an institution because it can be picked on. If you're the Met here in New York City, look, let's just even be real. Let's be the Guggenheim. And 99% of your, no, if you're the Guggenheim, and you are, are putting it out in the New York Times that you are ecstatic because in your 100-year history, you have hired your first full-time Black curator. I mean, I'll, you know, I hate to break it to you, homie, but, like, why are you celebrating? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, that's the thing. It's like, why, why do I need to know that in a newspaper announcement? And why is the New York Times writing about this shit? This is a disgrace. It's a disgrace. And why does that happen? It's because everybody in that room thinks the same thing. It's a disgrace. Let's call it what it is. So institutionally, if you want a different kind of institution, it starts from actually having different people and different viewpoints and perspectives building the institution. It's something that we talk about a lot when it comes to the Africa Center, because we can go a very particular way in terms of how we build the institution, which is essentially saying, oh, there's an example of how the Met did it or how the Guggenheim did it, and we're just going to create Black MoMA uptown. It's going to be great. Like, you can do that. Is that really interesting? Is that really creative? No, I don't think so. Maybe that's not to say that it doesn't require a lot of hard work and resources. And I think let's remember that these two things are not necessarily the same. You can pour in all the hard work and the resources, all the money and whatnot, and still build something that is fundamentally not creative because you are not interrogating again those tensions what does it mean to be an institution that has to represent all 54 countries 55 countries on the continent and how do those those dynamics those tensions those similarities play with each other what does it mean to be an institution that is supported in an environment that requires it to take money from very very wealthy individuals in a in a situation where the vast majority of people are struggling how to figure out how to pay their rent how does that tension factor into what it is you're doing? How does the tension of being an institution that represents Africa and that to people represents an elite version of Africa in this particular situation in Harlem? Like all those tensions are part, and if we are not, we're going through a process now where we're really trying to understand how all of those tensions can be brought to create an institution that is fundamentally different from say, the massive white walls and big pillars of something further down the street from us. That's, that is, in my mind, how you start creating new institutions that privilege a new kind of creativity that thinks about these questions of power consciousness, empathy, and ultimately the impact on the political space. That's what we're tr trying to do. How successful we will be at doing that depends on whether or not you know, we're able to articulate the vision of the story of what that could do for the world that we live in. It also depends a lot on whether or not we can convince people that the old world is gone. <laughs> you, you know, the old world where you've got this massive edifice that has all kinds of, you know, crazy curiosities that you stole from people, that world is gone. The world in which people are willing to tolerate that kind of thing, whether or not, you know, you have the backlash of, 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 of uh, white supremacy here that kind of tamps down on the Black Lives Matter movement and all that sort of stuff, that world is fundamentally crumbling. That's why people are responding, reacting, and trying to prop up these old styles of comfortable, familiar, like non-creative ways of expressing themselves in institutions against maybe more dynamic and, and uh, I should say, I don't want to say radical because that has a particular connotation. And I don't think that what we're trying to do is radical, but just more dynamic and inclusive, I think, is a better word. And if, if being inclusive, inclusive is radical, then that's a problem. But, you know, understandings of what it means to build an institution and have people participate in the life of the institution. For me as a CEO and director of this place, it means I have to think a lot about, you know, what it means to be in this hierarchical role if we're trying to build something that is more inclusive. Like, what does it mean to be a, my person in this particular seat? And how can I make sure that I'm thinking about that over and over and over again with each task or challenge or project that comes our way? And that's, that is, you know, it's a fundamentally uncomfortable position to be in, I think, but maybe that's good. And it, it's good until maybe I get too comfortable and then hopefully somebody will, will put me out to pasture and bring in somebody else who has a different set of discomforts that will drive how this institution can grow and develop. 
So basically, I feel in one of your words that you choose, power conscious is is really uh, this uh, this element you were just describing. Uh, really keep asking ourselves the same questions, like who is missing in the discussion? Who is center? Why? Uh, who has the power both formal and informal in this system? All, all these elements that probably it's, it seems to me that questioning is, is even more important at times at this level to the answer that you give to the question. Like is a, is a, is a process, is a, is a, is a process that start for, for keep asking really about who is benefiting from this system, uh, who does not, and, uh, and, and really reimagining uh, a possible a possible future, a possible new dynamic, and uh, this is uh, this is this is um, this sounds like a, a great opportunity, but it also sounds like a great channel, a great challenge. So, so I guess um, so. I guess my last question is: Are you optimist or not about the outcome of this struggle that we're living now? Uh, uh <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, you know, we're we're on November we're on November 4th and yesterday America decided to you know affirm that it really just enjoys white supremacy. So I don't know. I don't know anything. Am I optimistic? You know, I have to be, and I think as a black person in the world, as an African, you are are just you have a some almost I would say like a genetic predisposition to be essentialist about it towards optimism, given everything that has been thrown at us and our ancestors and you know like those of us who are alive now for however long. Like you can't get up and move in this world, even if you hate the world to get up the next day, if you're one of the people in Lagos who has just seen and witnessed the kind of violence that the state has pushed against them, and you get up the next day and you say, you know what, I'm still going to do this, there's a fundamental optimism there. If you're a Black person here in the United States and every single day somebody is trying to kill you just because they don't like your face, like, then you're optimistic. And more than that, you're optimistic if you are saying, even if you try to do this to me, I'm still going to look at you and say, you know what? We can hang. We can figure out a way to make this happen, right? And I'm not saying we can hang like we're going to be buddies, but like we can hang in that I respect your rights to exist in this world, even if you don't respect mine. That's a very optimistic way of looking at human relations and life in general. Do I necessarily feel that way all the time? Hell no. But do I think it's a an example of 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 optimism and how you move the discussion from, you know, Again, that sort of like Hegelian, you know, I'm human because I can kill you to I'm human because I can see you. Like, I think it's important. I think it's really important. And so I am optimistic in that sense. I just think there's going to be so much pain in between the, the where we are now and a, a, a vision of the future that is imperfect and yet somehow better for everybody. Because people don't want to, you know, people don't want to leave what they know. And getting there requires for all of us especially of those of us in, in positions of privilege to step away from what we know. And I find, I find it very hard to do. Like I'd be lying if I told you that I wasn't scared about losing some of the things that are, I have uh, just imbued with meaning for reasons I don't understand. But, you know, that's where I get scared. Uh, but am I optimistic that I can make that journey? I mean, I have to hope so. Am I optimistic that, that, that uh, people in the world can make that journey? You know, I also have to hope so. Otherwise I should just go and shrivel up and die. You know, like uh, just to close, I mean, there's something that my dad said to me. You know, my dad is in his 70s now. He's a uh, surprise, surprise, a Nigerian doctor. And he, um, you know, he grew up in a Nigeria, obviously was born before independence, uh, came of age during independence and then lived through as a, as a sort of young adult, the Nigerian Civil War. And, you know, we were talking about all the stuff that's been going on in the world right now. And, and this is a period of time where I was just super depressed. And he looked at me and he said to me, he was like, you know, and this is a man who has seen, who's lost his, like his whole family house, who's seen people die, who's all these crazy things. And he said, so what, are you going to shrivel up and die? Did Martin Luther King shrivel up and die? 
because there was some kind of political hardship? Did uh, Malcolm X shrivel up and die? Did we shrivel up and die? He's like, the world is a tough place. You have to be optimistic if you want to make it work. So that's where I get that strength from. Uzo, thank you so much. That was great. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was great. Thanks for listening to our new podcast, Creativity Pioneers. If you'd like to check out other episodes and know more about our mission, please visit moleskinfoundation.org. Keep on following this podcast and share your comments on Facebook and Instagram at Moleskin Foundation. Until next time, stay creative.